Kick off season three of the Three Tech Pod and the 2023-2024 offseason with the five biggest storylines that we learned from in 2023. Alabama has a new head coach and he's assembling his staff as we speak. And JJ McCarthy has made a decision on his future. All of that right here on the Three Technique. One man. Goodbye. 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 45. There goes Davis. Oh, my God. Davis is going to run it all the way back. Auburn's going to win the football game. They give it to Roger. They give it back down to the 30. They're down to the 20. All the bandits out on the field. He's going to go in the field. Four-man Alabama rush. Got him. No, they didn't. Oh, my gracious. Yeah. How about that? Welcome in, everybody. It is a frigid edition of the Three Technique, along with Trey Reeves and Garrett Turney. I'm Mitch Mason. Glad to have you with us as we uh, ramp into season three of the podcast. And uh, Trey currently says on our temperature gauge that it feels like one degree uh, here in North Texas. How how are you hanging down there in, in beautiful South Texas? Well, I'm a little bit further south than you guys now, and... Yeah, it's cold here too. Uh, the wind chill was brutal this morning. I don't know the exact reading, but it was not fun walking to church, uh, walking from the parking lot into church this morning. Not a fun time, but we survived. We're here. It's warm inside. And I know the takes and the uh, information is about to heat up as well. It's right. I was trying to think of some way to stay warm. And I thought, you know what? Let's just let Garrett cook here. We've got a Michigan topic coming up. Uh, first segment of the show. Um, so I'm sure we'll be warm and toasty uh, by the end of it. Um, just a couple of housekeeping items, I guess, to make you guys aware. We're going to be changing up the format of the show just a little bit. Um, and uh, with some of the background that that we have in sports radio, we thought, you know what, let's uh, continue to evolve this show, turn it into more of a sports radio program instead of just, you know, uh, every other podcast out there. So when we have ads and we do have some ads in the show, uh, you will know when to expect them and exactly where they are. So if that's something that, that bothers you, um, you know, feel free to skip right on through. It keeps this show free uh, and uh, allows us to just continue to uh, pursue this game and, and covering it the, the way that we want. But uh, guys, as we get ready to kind of get into this first segment here, we've got the five biggest things that we learned from 2023. That's coming up. Question of the day, going to be something new for our viewers. You can leave your feedback on Instagram or on Twitter at 3TechPod. We'd love to have you following us over there, by the way. Um, question of the day for our viewers, what was the biggest storyline for you this past season? So think of all the craziness that happened, the end of the four-team playoff, Michigan winning a national championship, uh, all of that, and distill that into one storyline 
that you either enjoyed covering the most or following the most um, or what you thought was most impactful for the game. We would love to hear from you again at 3TechPod. Uh, you can leave it in the YouTube comments as well. Uh, but guys, as, as we get ready to kind of dissect some of those five, are, what uh, what are some options that you anticipate will be thrown out here from uh, from the 3Tech faithful and the Jimmys and the Joes? Man, there's there's so much from this past season. And obviously, like we have our topics and the things that we learned, but there's so much from this past season that I feel like really got exposed. I think we're starting to see some stuff on the NIL front about how, you know, the grass is not always greener. And, and there's a lot of people who maybe have taken promises for things and maybe didn't get what they needed to. Um, obviously, there's, you know, storylines about trying to build rosters, how you can most effectively build your roster. You know, is it even worth it to recruit? Do you just raid the portal? And Man, like it, there's just so many different things that we learned from this last season that the the game is changing. Like there's a lot of people that are complaining, oh, college football's ruined. It's changed. It's not ruined, but it is changing. There are definitely mm-hmm. you know new adaptations that people are going to have to make. I think it'll end up being for the better. But oh boy, did we have to work through some of the kinks this last season? And there were some of the some of the big problems that I think got exposed that'll have to work themselves out. I believe that they will, but. Man, there were there were so many different things. And I'd be curious to see what everyone else thinks, you know, in, in the comments and everything else as far as, you know, w- what are some of the big things that need to fix? And then, you know, how do we even go about fixing some of those problems? I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot this offseason. But that's kind of the first thing that sticks out to me. I think a lot of people are scared, too, just because this is sure. the end of an era. We are moving into a new era, just teasing one of the things we'll talk about in our five things we learned. But it's a big transition that's coming up this off season. And we're going to do our best to, you know, kind of process that along with you guys and uh, try to make sense of all the big changes that are coming right now on the horizon. But God, Mitch, you're so right. So many things happened in this year. Days of our PAC 12 lives was less than six <laughs> months ago. Like that, that's just insane to me, but it, it, it's, it's a completely new era. It's a lot of change all at once. A lot of people are kind of freaking out about it, rightfully so, when there's big changes like this. And, you know, I think, I think that's going to dominate the discussion for the next, I guess, seven or eight months. Mm-hmm. As I look ahead to our content calendar, I mean, we've got all kinds of topics coming up on our weekly shows, report cards and exit interviews. We're going to be doing transfer portal trivia we're going to be talking about the state of the game so if you like all of that and are curious about all of that uh, hit the subscribe button you can help us hit 600 subscribers over on uh, uh youtube um we're driving to that so if you're not a subscriber if you found the show for the first time we'd love to have you aboard we found so many new jimmies and joes this time last season we've experienced a, a tremendous amount of growth through the late stages of this season as well and guys i mean Podcast has grown for uh, two consecutive seasons, which has just been a blast. We're marching to uh, to lofty goals, and uh, we take this seriously, and we'd love to have you along for the ride with us. Uh, so at 3TechPod on all socials, you can follow us there. Uh, also have to shout out our good friends, the good brand, homefieldapparel.com, for their sponsorship of this show. Uh, we're loving being affiliated with them, now heading into season two with them. And you can use our code 3TechPod for 15% off your entire order or if you head over to our link tree which is in our twitter in our uh, instagram you can shop directly through a a customized link there it helps us um continue to uh like i said keep this show free and uh support us as well you'll get your 15 percent off discount and you can get some of the best merch 
online as far as college brands go retro logos we're into college basketball season now so if you want to get stuff from march madness head on over to the good brand homefieldapparel.com guys let's launch into it uh we've got a couple of news and notes to talk about here before we get to the five big storylines that we identified and first and foremost kalen DeBoer heads from washington to alabama as uh nick saban has officially retired and trey i mean DeBoer's resume speaks for itself right i mean the dude is an elite college football coach i saw a tweet yesterday that he is the living embodiment of when you create a coach on ncaa 14 right like you just lose very many games most of those are at the very beginning of a program he's 104 and 12 as a head coach that's insane like when you just put that out on paper it is absolutely insane and you know in the lead up to the national title game we were talking you and i were talking about how we we hit the moment was not going to be too big for him. And I don't think it was it, despite the, the results of that game, because he has won at every single stop, whether that's in the NAIA level offensive coordinator, taking an offense at Indiana that has just been, you know, it, it, not down in the dumps for quite some time and, and really invigorating that offense, Fresno state, Washington, he, he has done nothing but win games at programs where it's, not always the easiest to win and he's overcome challenges. So, you know, as I've digested podcast after podcast, breaking down this hire since it's been announced, a couple things keep coming up. You know, the big concerns are he's never coached in the South and that is a big thing, right? If you just look right across the state at Auburn, their last hire before Hugh freeze was Brian Harson, who had never coached in the South. And it flamed out spectacularly. He was not ready for a big-time job like that. And the other concern is just following the guy, right? Following the GOAT in Nick Saban. That's the two things that I think Bama's biggest rivals are bringing up. Oh, you just hired your Brian Harson, and he's not going to be the guy to fill, fill the shoes. I have a couple thoughts on that. And I don't think if this fails, I don't think it's going to be Kalen DeBoer's fault. I, I think he is more than capable of leading a program of this caliber. He's shown it time and time again. Every time he's made a step up, it hasn't even been a slow build. It's been an immediate level of success. The man knows how to build a culture. The man knows how to get talent. The man knows how to put an offense on the field. And, you know, to some extent, a defense. It wasn't the best, highest-ranked defense, but it got the job done for the Huskies the majority improved. of the season. And improved throughout the year, exactly. So if this fails, I, I don't think he is scared of the spotlight at Alabama. And the man knows how to coach. You don't go 104 and 12 on accident. I don't care what level of uh, football you're coaching. If this fails, it's going to be because this infrastructure around Bama does not trust Kalen DeBoer to do his thing. If you look back, a, a lot of the people I've heard on podcasts, on radio shows, breaking this down, they've been honest and said, you know, when Nick Saban started, it was very difficult for him to get control of the program. That's Nick Saban, the guy that would eventually go down as the greatest of all time, right? There are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. There are a lot of people that, you know, can't that that can't get their hands out of the cookie jar in Tuscaloosa. And it took Nick Saban laying down the law and saying this is going to be my program that really made them start to turn around. So If this fails, I think we're going to be able to look back, maybe not on Kalen DeBoer, but just the situation around him and maybe the people not trusting him quickly enough 
to do his job and do it well like he has at all the other stops. Was this the take that you were you were cooking on before this is the we take hit? Take I was cooking off air because I think like a lot of people are at, the rivals of Bama are clowning this hire, and I think they would clown the hire if it was anybody other than Kirby Smart or Bill Belichick, right? Like this is a fantastic hire for Alabama. This is probably about as best as they could do. I don't think Dan Landing or Steve Sarkeesian were ever really in play. I think those were textbook go get a raise at your uh, your current school situation. Shout out to their agent. Um, Jimmy Sexton special. Jimmy Sexton <laughs> was just on a heater late last week getting his clients raises, but uh, and Mike Norvell as well. But, yeah. um, you know, I, this is about as well as they could possibly do. The man just knows how to win. And his track record shows if he fails, I really don't think it's him. I don't think the spotlight is too big. The shoes are very big shoes to fill, but I don't think that he's scared of filling those shoes. And it, it, it's going to be the the setup around him. If they can give him control and let him do his thing, it might take a couple years. They might not, you know, be national championship ready next year. I don't know. But if they can let him do his thing, they're going to be fine. Garrett, I, I want your input on this because that is – maybe the highest possible praise that you could give to somebody who hasn't won a national championship at this level, right? Uh, Trey essentially is saying that his reputation should be bulletproof to an extent. Uh, do you, what, what do you think about that? Considering, I mean, Harbaugh has been, uh, you know, much uh, aligned Dabo who's won a couple of national championships. Like Ryan suddenly Day. he's, he's under fire. Kirby smart was not always, um, you know, the, the guy that's won two national championships either, like that is high praise. Right. Well, and the, the big thing about what I was looking at going into this hire and, and what I said on the previous show and we talked about it was like, guys, it was kind of impossible for Alabama to nail this hire, right? You can't pick the right guy because there's no way that you can pick somebody who's going to improve your program over where the greatest who have ever done it built it to, right? There's no way that you can possibly get that yeah. right. And that's why I thought guys like, you know, Steve Sarkeesian, Dan Lanning, those didn't make sense because they were building programs where they were, right? And they had the, the buy-in from their staff. They had the buy-in from the, the administration. They had plenty of resources. And, and all it was going to take was, you know, taking that next step up with maybe a bigger contract or maybe more NIL funding or something like that to take their, you know, program to the next step. I mean, even for Texas, I mean, they made the playoff, right? They, they're not lacking in talent or execution or anything like that. They've made the playoff this year, right? There were, you know, some interesting play calls away from playing for it all. And so, um, but, you know, I, I look at this and I think, man, like there was no way they could get this right, but they did a pretty dang close job of it. Um, you know, the, the Harson comparison is interesting and I've seen that a lot online. Uh, problem is Harson never coached for a national championship game right. as far as I'm aware. I mean, I, I have to go back and check. I don't know if that was part of the 2007 season or something, but I, I, as far as I remember, Harson never coached at that elite level. Um, and, and, you know, I don't think he was nearly as successful. So, you know, all, all of that talk, I think is a little premature. The idea that DeBoer can't fail, I think is possibly a little premature. I, I think mostly because you have to see how he can build a roster, right? He did a good job with the transfer portal up at Washington. But as we'll talk about in a little bit, the transfer portal does not an elite program make. And so I, I think that we have to think about this from the perspective of how can you recruit the South? How's he going to be able to put a good staff in place that's going to convince players to stay and, and, and you know, keep building on what they have? 
And then also how do you sustain that over a long term? He'll get a little bit of grace. You know, he'll get a little grace period from Bama fans and from the from the Bama, you know, faithful. But I do I think – well, yeah. it, it, he'll get a season, right? You'll get a season to say maybe. like, okay, well, maybe that – but like if we're honest, a 9-3 and three season, that feels pretty bad. If you follow it with another 9-3 and three season – you know, waters are starting to get choppy. So, like, I, I do think that you're onto something, Trey, with the fact that, you know, it's going to be, you know, have to turn it around quick or else the Bama fans are going to be expecting something else. He will have a little bit of grace time, but he's got to build this thing quick and he's got to be able to put something in place to keep Bama on top or at least near the top, uh, you know, to keep them, you know, building in the right direction. I think he can do it. He just needs to, to you know, nail his his whatever his coordinator hires are all his recruiting staff, he needs to nail that and get that in place. And then the other piece of that is I know that, you know, Bama hadn't necessarily done the NIL thing as well as everybody else in the country had done. Didn't have to, your coach is Nick Saban, but they they need to start investing in that NIL and, and start to invest in, you know, building that infrastructure so he can build the roster that he needs to. One thing I'll, I'll say on that just real quick before we move on, Mitch, it, Couple, well, I guess a couple things. I I think what you're hitting at, Garrett, is the the fan base has to be a little patient, right? Yes, 100%. It's a a coaching downgrade. Like, Kalen DeBoer is one of the best hires they can make, and it's a coaching downgrade because you're downgrading from the GOAT. If if Kalen DeBoer wins three championships in his tenure at Bama, that's extremely successful and only half of what Saban did. And it's a downgrade on paper, right? Because Nick Saban broke college football and broke the standard of success, not right. just in Alabama, but everywhere. So they've got to be patient. They've got to let him do his thing. And, you know, next year, the schedule is really not, not the easiest schedule in the world. I pulled it oh. up. They've got a road trip to Wisconsin in the middle of September. Their first SEC game is Georgia. Welcome to the <laughs> SEC game. You get Kirby Smart and the Bulldogs come to town. They also travel to Tennessee, have Missouri at home, travel to LSU and to Oklahoma before the Iron Bowl. So it, it's going to be a difficult run in his first year. They've got to give him some time. They've got to be patient and adjust their expectations just a little bit at the very beginning. But the good thing for Kalen DeBoer is, guys, if only he had a mentor that's staying around near the program to help him figure out, how, oh, wait, Nick Saban just took a job in the athletic department. <laughs> Yeah, as a special advisor. And yeah, yeah, he, he's going to have all the tools, you know, inside the football building that he needs. It's just if all the noise on the outside can be canceled out, he can weather that storm to me. Well, Trey, on the noise point and, and being able to cancel that out, I do think there's one primary thing to watch for. If the SEC just gets competitive and it turns into kind of a you know, round robin thing where one year it's LSU and one year it's Georgia and one year it's Texas and one year it's Tennessee. I don't think that that's going to bother the Bama fans as much as long as they're staying at the top. But if Kirby Smart goes and puts another couple trophies in his case in the next couple of years, that's where I think your problem is, is because if, if Kirby Smart and look with the expanded playoff, it's hard to think he's going to miss it. So as long as you can believe in the Georgia program to win a couple of games in December and January, it's likely that Georgia wins another title or two in the next several years. If that's what's happening, and also there's not that same level of success for Bama, I could see that being the place where Bama fans get a little bit impatient, you know, as opposed to, you know, if it were like LSU a couple of times or, you know, maybe Tennessee gets a really good quarterback so they win one. And, you know, that would be bad, but I don't think it would be as bad as if Georgia keeps stacking trophies. 
Phyllis from Molga is going to have a conniption if uh, <laughs> if that's if that's what plays out. Um, quickly before we hit our first break here, let's talk about JJ McCarthy and, and I guess to close out on on DeBoer. Uh, Ryan Grubb announced that he's coming back or not coming back, uh, going to Alabama to be the offensive coordinator. Much of the Washington staff is also going to Tuscaloosa, and then there have been a couple of key members that DeBoer is retaining. So that staff really starting to round out nicely. We'll talk about who could be the head coach for Washington uh, maybe next time if they haven't already hired someone. There's there's a couple of names that I've been told uh, to keep our eye on. So we'll see how that develops. Uh, but J.J. McCarthy announced today on January 14th that uh, he's headed to the NFL. 27-1 and as a starter at Michigan. And, and Garrett, uh, obviously we got to keep this short here, but how do you feel about McCarthy going to the NFL? Is he ready? And should he... Uh, should he be expected to flourish at the next level? I think McCarthy going to the NFL makes sense, but I also think it's simultaneously kind of a mistake. I think it would always make sense to go out on a championship, right? Every time you've reached the top, you want to go out a winner. You want to be able to walk off with the confetti, throw the hand up in the air and feel like a champion. And I'm not saying that they can't do it next year, but when you look around what their conference is doing with, you know, Oregon coming in, and, you know, with everything that's going on at Ohio State right now, you know, Michigan's going to be losing some pieces. And, you know, the chances to repeat, I think, are going to be a little bit harder than it was to win it this year. And so it's it makes sense for him to go out as a champ and cement his legacy as the quarterback at Michigan who who brought them back to the top. But I still don't think he's quite ready for the NFL. I don't think he quite has the arm talent yet. Um, I think he's got just about everything but that that special arm. Uh, he's extremely athletic. He's smart. He knows what to do with the football. Um, but I just I don't think that he's you know at that level yet where he can be a be a starting quarterback for an NFL franchise that can really make a difference. Kind of reminds me of maybe a less talented with his arm Baker Mayfield type of quarterback, um, where it's you know it's there's some athleticism there. He's going to make some good throws, but it, you know. He's not necessarily like special in any one regard. Baker, I think, is a better passer than McCarthy, but I, I do think you know I, I there's some comparisons to me made there. Uh, but no, I think that for him, he's going to need to develop. He would be, I think, in a good position if he gets to sit behind somebody for a couple of years yeah. and just kind of learn and grow in an NFL system. Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to maybe see him go somewhere where, you know, the quarterback's aging, but not quite done. maybe like an LA Rams situation where he can go and sit behind Stafford for another couple of years, let him finish his career out, finish his contract. And then you can kind of be the next guy in a good talented team. So, you know, he, I'm sure we'll do a lot more breakdown of this when we hit their draft coverage, but yeah, you know, I, I think it's cool for him that he gets to do this. I think it makes sense on the timing. But I still I'm a little curious about him, uh, you know, maybe making that next step heading to the NFL. I think I agree for for everything that you just said. I don't know that he's special enough to go into the NFL and immediately thrive. But listen, Jalen Hurts, we were all kind of clowning the Eagles when they took Hurts in the second round. He wasn't going to be the starter. Um, we didn't feel like he had a special that special it factor. And then sure enough, he develops into yep. a, a leader of a, a Super Bowl uh, run last year um, well you know and mitch the one thing about it is the dude wins and that's there's something it does win. that if you if you win football games there's something about that that you want on your rod there's a reason that people are willing to take a chance on guys who you know maybe they're not as talented but they got that winning dna in them i think there's something to that so 
I'm, I'm curious to see what happens. I'm, I'm excited for the kid. And I think that he gets to, you know, and he'll never buy a beer in Ann Arbor ever again. So that's you know good for him. <laughs> very, very true. All right. So we're going to take our first break uh, on the other side. We get into the top five things that we learned from this college football season. Welcome back to the three technique. As we get into segment number two, Trey, we have a new sponsor to bring on board. This yes, season. we do. And I'm very excited to tell you guys about our new friends over at baller pickleball guys. The off season's here. And I know that means less time watching football, but it does mean more time for those other hobbies that we really love to enjoy. All three of us here at three tech HQ love getting out on the pickleball court. And guys, I love it even more now that I have, I'm armed with my baller pro paddle from baller pickleball. So the founders and fellow podcasters, Jason and Jeremy set out to create a paddle that combined premium quality and elite performance with unbeatable affordability and Baller was born to share that result. The original Baller po- Baller Probe and brand new Baller Heat paddles can take your game to the next level. And plus, they're committed to donating more than 50% of all company profits, no matter how large the company grows. So you can shop paddles, hats, bags, and so much more at BallerPickleball.com. That's B-A-L-L-R, Pickleball.com. And use code 3TECHPOD for 10% off your first purchase. Again, code 3TECHPOD, T-H-R-E-E, TECHPOD at BallerPickleball.com for 10% off. Awesome. Uh, So excited to have them on board. Excited for warmer weather when we can get out and play more pickleball. Uh, That is not happening today necessarily, but uh, very, very soon. You just give it 15 minutes, the weather here in the Lone Star State changes. Guys, as we sat down to figure out, okay, how do we start this offseason? How do we go into year three? What should be the first episode that we that we tackle? And and without a doubt, we all came up with, well, there's so many storylines from 2023. What if we distilled them down into our top five? And so that's exactly what we're going to do here over the next two segments. The, the five biggest things that we learned from 2023 that we will then kind of keep our eyes on, I feel like, going forward in 2024 uh garrett it starts off with with our number five you can't build a super team instantly to compete through just one portal offseason and i know this may rub some people the wrong way we certainly ruffled some feathers uh in boulder colorado this offseason yeah, why'd you choose that picture for that graphic garrett but, uh, I, I don't know, man. Know. That's something happened in Colorado, I guess, and the guy used the portal, and uh, we were told by people all off season that there was no chance that they wouldn't win eight games. Like, oh, these guys are winning eight games minimum. It's going to be amazing. Dion's just a winner, and Dion could very well be a winner someday. But I think we pretty much saw from the rip that you cannot do this in one off season. You can't completely turn over a roster in one off season. He tried. He really tried. He took the entire roster, threw it out the window, brought in a bunch of new guys. But the problem is there is something to chemistry. There is something to understanding somebody's culture, understanding what it means to win, getting time in the, the in the weight room, getting time in the system, practicing with your teammates, trusting. Like there's just so much stuff that goes into winning football games besides just the X's and O's and just having the right guys on the field or whatever. Like there's there's so much that goes into winning football besides just that. And, and you know, we we didn't know how Dion was going to adjust coming up a level, right? He had never coached, you know, at the Power Five level before. He came up and he tried, and it, it wasn't a bad season. We told people if he wins four games or if he wins five games, 
that's a huge improvement off of what Colorado's done the last several years. And so we should expect, you know, hey, that would be good. That's a good step in the right direction. Programs aren't built overnight. And, and this is kind of the thing is you can build a program from like maybe good to great or great to elite or elite to championship winning through some, you know, additions to the portal. I think Ole Miss has been doing that the last several years, adding players and doing a really good job taking themselves from a good team to a great team to elite to next year. A lot of people expecting them to compete for the whole thing, but you can't do it in one offseason. It's just not possible. Maybe the only guy who could have done it just retired from the game. And even then, I just think if you drop Nick Saban in Boulder, Colorado, it's still going to take him a couple of years to build the whole thing back up and make them championship winning contenders. So it's that look, it was fun. I know that they got all the hype, and I know everybody told us we were stupid in the offseason, but here we are at the very end of the season saying, you know, we kind of told you so. They went four and eight. That's what we predicted they would go. <laughs> I thought I was right. optimistic at five and seven. Turns out I was kind of right. Yeah. Well, and the two keywords here in, in this lesson are compete and one, right? You can, you, you, everyone is going to need to use the portal. I, I'm a firm believer that the days of just being able to, you know, stack high school talent and never use the portal are long gone. Just ask Dabo Sweeney how that's going for him at Clemson, right? But it, it, you can't do it in one offseason. You have to build. And Garrett, I love what you said. You can maybe make that one jump, right? If you're a perennial 10 win team and you just need a couple of guys to get over the top, you find your quarterback through the portal. And, you know, that puts you over the top. Great. That's awesome. If you're a perennial six win team and it takes you to eight wins or eight wins to 10 wins could definitely see that, but making these massive jumps and the people that are freaking out that, you know, think it's going to be like European soccer all of a sudden, and these boosters are going to buy all these players and, you know, create a man city, no offense, Garrett, but create a man city overnight with a bunch of oil money. Like that's just not going to happen the way that it's currently set up in my opinion. I hear you. And, you know, listen, egg on my face, because the other example I included in our notes was USC. I expected mm -hmm. USC. I picked USC to go to the playoff. I expected them to win the Pac-12, even with how stacked Oregon was, Washington coming on strong. Uh, and, and so, you know, I thought I expected USC to be that good or great team that, OK, two seasons in now, big yeah. portal class, especially on the defense. They take that next step. And I think what. Uh, you know, we got to see is, first of all, Alex Grinch is your defensive coordinator, just nullifies everything else in the program. So, you know, it's uh, it's like multiplying anything by zero. Like the result is zero. Uh, but even with that, a big portal class does not a super team necessarily make. And so, Trey, like you're saying, it has to be a combination of effects, uh, a combination of factors that ultimately lead to where you can become a Georgia. You can recruit like Washington. Washington was not burning up the high school ranks. I think last yeah. year their high school class was 48th in the country, like not elite high school rec uh, recruiting, but they brought in the right portal talent. It obviously helps when you land a superstar quarterback like Michael Penix Jr. So, you know, this whole notion that just overnight the, the team that has the best portal class is instantly going to be that favorite to win the national championship, that favorite to win the conference. I just, that's not statistically true. We haven't seen that be borne out. And so that's why we started with this as lesson number five. Number four, Trey, you alluded to this earlier. We're saying goodnight 
sweet prince as we officially lay the Pac-12 conference to rest. It goes out with a bang, though. Yeah, I think the lesson that we learned, right, is it wasn't necessarily a problem of, you know, talent on the field in the Pac-12. I think a lot of it was, it was a talent of getting or a problem of getting their product in front of enough viewers to make it marketable in modern college football. And, you know, it is ironic that the best season the conference has had in probably a decade it ends up being their last one after everything had happened. But, yeah, I, it, everything that I saw on the field this fall in the Pac-12 just really made me kind of weep for what we could have had, right? That this could have been a conference that really invested and put itself out there and been innovative and, you know, mirrored the programs that they have and the way that they've been innovative in talent acquisition and coaching and offensive scheme, tons of innovators out in that conference. But unfortunately there were no innovators in the actual office of the conference and they just got caught left behind. And now we have to mourn the loss of a historically great conference and uh, everything, all the change that comes with that. Garrett is USC UCLA fell flat on their faces in uh, in their final season of the Pac-12. Were you more surprised about that or more surprised that Washington was able to, you know, kind of become the the cream of the crop with a team like Utah, we didn't even mention them in that little run that uh, is, is lurking there as well. Well, it guys, it's so interesting because when you looked at what you expected last offseason, the first big news that ro- broke was that USC and UCLA were heading out. And they're like, whoa, those are the big brands. It's crazy. It's going to implode the whole thing. Washington and Oregon were the afterthought to the Big Ten. Now, as they enter, a lot of people thinking Oregon might actually win the Big Ten Conference next year. Washington obviously just appeared in the national championship game. And by the way, USC and UCLA didn't really factor into very much of college football this year. So, you know, it's it's maybe a little bit backwards on that flip side. You know, you just mentioned Utah. I'm also thinking a team like Arizona, both of them heading off to the Big 12 you have these massive, you know, teams that have been playing well, producing well, and by the way, have been garnering eyeballs. I looked this up just now while we were, you know, doing the the segment. Guys, the the Pac-12 was tied for second in terms of appearances on a major network in like a at a prime spot. Wow. They they were tied with the Big 10. SEC had 33, Big 10 and Pac-12 both had 22. The ACC had 11 and the Big 12 six. Like <laughs> That's blowing my mind because the entire narrative last offseason was just that the Pac-12 can't get eyeballs, nobody's watching, who's going to actually share the revenue, what you know network would find. Apparently, networks wanted to broadcast these games. <laughs> Apparently, people wanted to show their games. They had the teams, they had the competitive football, but they couldn't find a way to put a deal together. The, the absolute failure of the conference to put a deal together, to put their teams you know, in front of, you know, their audience, mm-hmm. I think will go down as one of the worst mistakes in the history of college football. We've lost the Pac-12, not because they're not good teams, not because nobody wants to watch them, not because it's in a late viewing slot, because the conference couldn't figure it out. The conference didn't know how to put a, a deal together. Maybe they thought of themselves as something they weren't. Maybe they, you know, overestimated something about themselves or, or maybe they just underestimated it and they are like, you know, nobody's really going to do it. We'll never pay that deal off or whatever. But still, like, they weren't willing to take a, a shot on them. Maybe it's shame on ESPN for not giving him a deal. Maybe it's shame on Fox for not giving him a deal. But it's probably shame on the Pac-12 for not finding a way to keep everyone together. 
because this conference would be a lot of fun next year to watch yeah. as you're watching, you know, Washington and Oregon run it back, as you're watching Arizona try to run it back, as you're watching Utah try to go back up there, USC with a new quarterback and trying to, you know, kind of rebuild that with a better defense. There'd be so many interesting Pac-12 storylines. And by the way, if you were still a conference, you might have kept DeBoer up in Washington if you felt that he still had a direct path to the playoff. So maybe Washington stays together as a program if that's the case, too. I, there's too much to speculate about here. It just sucks that we lost the conference. I Tell me if this is an off-base take. I feel like this is like the Titanic all over again, right? The Conference of Champions, like 100%. successful. Like there's no, no way the Pac-12 is going to. Yeah, there's no way the Pac-12 is going to fall apart, right? And then all of a sudden, you have poor management at the top. Someone falls asleep at the wheel. And we've talked about that ad nauseum on this podcast. But Garrett, I think you're right. Like this, this is this could be a an example historically in like in business classes of mm-hmm. how you don't manage an organization because you objectively took one of the most successful conferences ever in sports history, successful organizations in world sports history, and you ran it aground. Because you you misjudged so many business factors, so many market indicators leading up to this, to where you almost had the national champion of the biggest sport in America that was going to be without a conference, outside of your conference going into next season. Like that, that is continues to blow my mind the more we think about it. See, Mitch, your Titanic comparison's close, but it's like if the Titanic crashed in the iceberg, everyone hit the lifeboats, they start to you know panic, but then heroically somebody musters the troops, they put the whole ship back together, then they circle around and hit the iceberg again. Like That's exactly <laughs> what your comparison is like for the Pac-12. It's just such a poor, poor, poor effort and product from, from the, the conference office and what they're able to do. Just shameful that we're going to lose Pac-12 after dark, and yeah. and you know the the entire thing that we've been doing here with the Pac-12 with with the the fun stuff on the West Coast and these elite match. I mean, it's it just sucks. Like we're losing yeah. something really special, and it could have been avoided. Like it really could have been avoided. And yeah, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like the last eight-ish years of Pac-12 football were you know must-watch TV like this year was. Because there were some problems, right? There were there were years where there were no true national contenders, and that certainly sure. hurt. That certainly hurt the marketability of the conference, but why does Coca-Cola hire marketing people? Why do you get Coca-Cola ads, even though that brand is, you know, uh, recognizable all around the world? It's so they can stay on top and stay in front of people's minds. And they did nothing to keep us at the forefront of their minds. It was hard to access their games legally, right? It was hard to, (laughs) you know, get on the Pac-12 network. Not a lot of people carried it nationwide. So just, just awful, awful business deals all around. And yeah, I I love your uh, analogy of the Titanic. I also think you're right, Mitch, that it's going to end up in sports business or maybe even regular business textbooks one day, how this all went down and how they just failed as the conference office. Yeah. uh, I think, I think there are many lessons to be learned from this final lesson here before we hit our last break. Texas is back, and they're set up to compete in the Southeastern Conference. Oklahoma, eh, maybe not so much. Uh, Garrett, t- tell me tell me a little bit about where Texas succeeded in rebuilding this year and, and what enabled them to, to make a run to the college football playoff. 
Well, so there's two main things that happened to Texas that I think helped them build the program. Number one, Sark emphasized actually building the big boy spots for football, actually trying to beef up the lines of scrimmage, actually recruiting, you know, like high talent linebackers who aren't just good in coverage, right? Actually trying to find good elite running backs who can run it up the middle and, and, you know, do that. It seemed like for so much of Herman's tenure, he just was looking for like the skill guys, right? And, you know, for so much of what he was doing there, he just want to find the flashy quarterback or the, the big time wide receiver. And the, you know, there was like that class, they finished super high, but like seven of their top commits were all like DBs. And like, that's, that's not how you build a roster with seven DBs. It's not a great formation to come out in very often. And it's certainly not how you win the big games, right? You don't win the big games by having, you know, a seven on seven style team. You win the big games by being able to, to, you know, get up there, get beefy on the O-line and be able to impose your will on the guy across from you. And, and they finally committed to doing that. And, and to Texas, massive props for that, because that's what you're going to need to do in the SEC. So you're not just built for success last year. You're also built to go and succeed in the SEC. You have a better package together than if you had done this, you know, say like, you know, next year, or the year after you're just starting to commit to that. You're, you're in a good spot today to start with that. The other thing that Texas did is they stopped listening to all those big money guys who wanted to control the program and hang out and just kind of circle the field. And they just let Sark do his thing. They just let Sark cook. There were so many, you know, big name donors, big money guys that they, they came in and they would want to mess with stuff when it was Herman out there. And they want to mess with stuff when it was Charlie Strong before that. And they just wanted to tinker with things. They wanted to get their little space and, you know, they're, and, you know, for better or worse, and I know he still does it, but McConaughey was a big deal on the sideline and everything else. And like, I, I get it. You're going to have a certain level of that with Texas anyways, but for the most part, they backed up and they said, I'm not going to get in the way of this team. I'm going to let the coach do coach things and build his program. And because he was willing to do that. And because Sark is such a great offensive mind, they were able to build their program back into something a lot better and, 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 you know, hopefully for them, they're able to continue this on in the week in, week out grind in the SEC. I think that's still kind of up to be debated, but nobody can doubt that they'll at least be able to put a competitive product out there, whether or not they win or lose games. They might come short in several games. They may lose, you know, four or five games next year, but it won't be getting blown off the field. They're obviously not in, in a conference they belong in. Yeah. And, and Trey, I know you have some reservations still about Texas going into the SEC. I think, that may be a segment for one of our report card episodes coming up. I'll give you that platform. But tell me about the flip side. You've got the Sooners who, man, I know that they're excited to go into the SEC. Well, at least the majority of their fans are excited to go in the SEC. Message board geniuses might disagree with us. Too. Yeah, yeah, they've, they've certainly got a lot of folks that are maybe wishing they could go back to the Big 12. But when I look at their roster, they're losing everybody. Yeah, yeah. They, and, you know, I don't envy the job that Brent Venables had because when Lincoln Riley shocked the world and went out West, a lot of that roster just left Norman very quickly. So he had a rebuilding job that I don't think a lot of people realized. And, you know, he has a quarterback injury year one, a lot of setbacks year one, but you look up and he took the team that won six games last year in his first year and won 10 this year. And I know he lost Dylan Gabriel. I know, you know, Jackson Arnold got to have his debut in the Alamo Bowl. Mixed results, a lot of turnovers in that game, but also made, made some throws that made you say, okay, that's why this guy is, you know, as ballyhooed as he is. So 
the jury's a little out on Oklahoma. I, I'm more worried about Oklahoma than I am Texas. I'm worried, like you mentioned, I'm worried about both of these teams adjusting from the Big 12 to the SEC. Way fewer, you know, j- weeks where you can sleepwalk and get a win, right? Yeah. If you look at the schedules, the SEC did Oklahoma dirty next year with their introductory schedule. I'm just going to read this off to you guys. They have their three out-of-conference games. It's Temple, Houston, and Tulane at home. No cakewalk by any stretch of the imagination with two of those. Their SEC schedule is Tennessee at home, at Auburn, Texas and Dallas, South Carolina at home. Then listen to this close, fellas. At Ole Miss, Maine in a non-conference game. And then back to the SEC to close out with at Mizzou, Alabama at home, and at LSU. Ooh, that's wow. six losses right there. And that was me kind of that was me kind of not counting Auburn, but like Auburn can make it seven. Like Auburn's could be plucky next year. They don't have a they don't have a game that I'm sharpying in as a win after September 14th, other than that main game. Ooh. I, yeah, I mean, rough. you're not you're not wrong. They've they've just got so much to recoup this season. They lost all five offensive starters. They lost three of the four running backs in their backfield. Danny Stutzman is off to the NFL. I mean, guys, it is. it, it would be one thing if they were going to the SEC with a roster loaded with, you know, fourth and fifth year seniors, right? But they're having to replace so much of their foundational cornerstones, especially with uh, when you compare them to Texas, who is built, as Garrett said, built, developed in the trenches. They're going through their opponents, not around them anymore. Oklahoma's got to claw back so much of that. And then given that schedule, this is this could be tough. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say the the thing for Oklahoma that I think they're going to hang their hat on next year is at least it's not Florida because I think the only it's worse true. schedule right now is Florida's schedule. Florida, I think Oklahoma is like, worse. I think Florida Oklahoma's might not win a game next year. Like Florida looks like <laughs> this schedule sucks, man. Florida's it's non-conference awful. is cruel. That's well, that's it, for sure. They got like all the bad teams in the SEC too. I need to go look that up real quick. But yeah, their their schedule is just brutal. I think we made, did a whole episode on that in the last offseason when they released, and it was just like, hi, this is unfair. This shouldn't be allowed to happen. This might count as cruel and unusual. I, I think I think Oklahoma and Florida are two programs to look at for report cards uh, when we get out um, to that uh, to those episodes, just because there's it, it feels like those programs might be hanging on the knife's edge. Now, I don't know that Venables is in danger of getting fired. Napier certainly is. Um, but but I think those are, are two programs to watch. I've got Florida's schedule. I'll pencil them in for two wins. Um, they've got Miami. They've got Samford. That's probably a win. Uh, mm-hmm. Texas a and Mississippi State, that could definitely be a win, but I don't know what the Bulldogs are doing next year. Could be better maybe. Probably not. Um, UCF, Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, Texas, LSU, Ole Miss, Florida State. Like – they hit all of the top teams like the whole way down, plus their non-conference of Miami and Florida State and UCF before they get like Samford on the side. That is that is brutal. That is a year that playing the directional state schools absolutely comes back mm-hmm. to bite you. Um, yeah, that's a that Miami team. on paper when the AD put that together, but holy crap! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it's awful. <laughs> It's like the the one day a year in the office that all of the the tax forms are due and everyone has to stay late. 
this is that's by the this way, year. This is by the way, Cam Ward's Miami Hurricanes. Yeah. And, and Mike Norvell's Florida State team at the end of the year. In yeah. addition to all the other like like Kentucky got their transfer in, Tennessee, I think, with Nico is gonna be a lot better. Like there's there's just so many up and down this schedule. I just don't know. Ole Miss as well. I I don't know how you're gonna win like three games. I don't see three wins. It's going to be tough for the Gators, no doubt. All right, let's hit our final ad break. When we come back, we'll do the top two things we learned in college football. Stay tuned. Welcome back to our final segment here. Top five things that we learned in the 2023 college football season. We've already run through the first three. And finally, we've got down to our last two submissions. Trey, number two that we've been trumpeting for I don't know how many years, even before the podcast, the 12-team playoff should have been the pick from the very beginning. Yeah, I think this season really converted a lot of naysayers there, right? I think a lot of people that were kind of on the fence or maybe very adamantly pro-four-team saw Florida State getting left out, saw the travesty of that decision. Honestly, like the more I thought about how the college football playoff played out, and I thought about the Georgia Bulldogs sitting at home, the more I thought, you know, like they could have proven themselves in a 12-team playoff. And I know like that would devalue the SEC championship game, whatever. But for me, it's more worth it to have the best teams decided on the field head-to-head across conferences. So, you know, if you want to have a fun exercise, just think back, you know, 10, 15 years at all the amazing players that would have gotten a chance to play for a national championship on a 12 team playoff field, right? Like just player after player that never got to make it to a 14 playoff now would have a chance. And that gets me fired up about the matchups that we're going to see, you know, there's still going to be, you know, a debate over the devaluing of the regular season. I know the argument is you can never increase the quantity of something, or decrease the scarcity and also increase the value. I get that, but we're going to have a lot more fun in December. There's still going to be some fun bowl matchups outside of the playoff, but we're going to have a lot less opt-outs. We're going to have a lot more of these top teams deciding it on the field and eliminating the backroom debates that have decided the national championship for the last 10 years or so. I'm really excited about that. We get it out on the public. We get it out on the field. And we no longer have to just, you know, take the words of committee members as gospel as much. I know they'll still pick the 12 teams, but it's way easier to debate 13 versus 12 than it is five versus four. Totally agree. Uh, The last thing that this sport needs is more power in the hands of folks over at the Gaylord. Um, You know, now we don't know what uh, what the auto bid situation is going to look like. They've still got to rewrite all of that. So it's not it's not like 12 at large teams, but. The fact that you will have conference champions that get in that are automatically solidified in. But then in that case, you have the Georgias. The I mean, Florida State would have been in, but you have even Oregon or Ohio State, right? Those teams get to compete. Those teams that pass the eye test as far as, hey, this team, given the right run, can win a national championship. Ole Miss, Penn State, both teams that probably deserve to be in that conversation to try and go win a playoff game, right? Like Penn State's offense stunk this year. And Ole Miss did exactly what I thought they were going to do to them in that bowl game. Some opt-outs aside, Ole Miss had one egregious loss 
to Georgia on the schedule, right? The one that they got blown off the field. Outside of that, they looked like a team that could compete, that could win a playoff game and have a chance to maybe go on an upset special. That's what I think we get to look forward to in 2024. Well, and on the scarcity note, Trey, like let's just take this to other sports for a second and see if we would agree this is the right system. Would we agree that the NFL playoffs would be better if we were watching, you know, 49ers, Cowboys, and like Ravens, and what was it, like Buffalo, and those were the only playoffs we got out of the NFL? Would we agree that's no. better, like leaving out Kansas City and that, you know, horrible game we got to watch on, uh, basically on ice and, and, you know, leaving out teams like Philly or teams like the Lions who, you know, they had that controversial loss to the Cowboys. And so now it's like, well, do they get left out because they had the same schedule and a controversial loss? You don't have to worry about that. You get to actually watch them play it on the field. And if the Lions really should have beat the Cowboys, well, you'll get to see that in a couple of weeks. And you'll get to see if that really is true. Or, or if the Cowboys or the Lions don't even advance, then you know they were both frauds, right? So, like, that's something you can see just in the NFL Go play it out in the college game, too. Put more teams in there. And, yeah, some of them are going to be the Browns, and they're going to get stomped by the Texans, right? And, that like, that'll happen. You're going to watch some teams get exposed as frauds. You know, maybe it'll be the, the G5 team that doesn't belong there. Maybe it'll be that, you know, fifth SEC team that gets in because of SEC bias or whatever else, and you realize they never should have been there. But at least you get to see it. At least you get to know for sure that the champion won. Yeah. And also, like, do we really want to see? And, and I love the regular season. I love the regular season. But so many of these conferences have become a few teams at the top who are elite and they just beat up everybody else on their schedule. Do we want to see more of those or do we want to see all those elite teams at the top of the conferences getting a chance to play each other? Or do we just want to pick like the ones that kind of look the best? Or like, I don't know, I just kind of like the way Alabama scored their touchdowns instead of the way that, you know, Oregon scored their touchdowns the way that, you know, you know, oh, well, Florida State, they won with defense, but defense doesn't get ratings. So whatever. Like, I none of that's interesting to me. I want to watch the teams play. I want to watch the good teams play each other and then dominate. Especially now that we have super conferences and expanded schedules where it's not, you know, the same formula of playing your division in a couple crossovers every year. You're going to get the discrepancies like we just highlighted with Texas and Oklahoma, how Texas has a much easier schedule than Oklahoma, where they used to play the exact same schedule. So, yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating to see. I'm really excited to see, you know, those teams get a chance to make an upset. And, you know, the 12 seed is probably never going to win a national championship. That's not the goal of the 12 seed. The goal of the 12 seed is to win that first game and then see what happens. Right. That's that's how. We've treated March Madness for years. I know college football is unique and that's awesome, but it's never logically made sense that if you're going to have a playoff to have four of 131 teams in it, that same percentage guys, you know how many teams would make the NFL playoffs if we did the same percentage? Like one, <laughs> one. Yeah. Congratulations <laughs> to the Baltimore Ravens for winning the Super Bowl. You passed the eye test. We're just going to hand you the Super Bowl trophy. Now here's Usher. Yeah, exactly. Like Oh, oh, that's my nightmare. Uh, <laughs> no, I agree. I think, I think, uh, it, Trey, as you let off this topic, I think a lot of anti-expansionists have quietly gotten on the bandwagon uh, throughout this this season, and and I'm really excited to see uh, what this playoff looks like in 2024. As you mentioned, starts in December, December 20th, I believe, is the the day of the first round game. So uh, we get we get this over a month of time as opposed to, you know, just 
kind of two busy holiday weekends at the very beginning of the year. Guys, the final thing that we learned here over the 2023 season, and this is a personal favorite near and dear to my heart, defense still wins championships. Obviously, the Michigan Wolverines got it done. They had one of the top overall defenses in the entire country when tasked with the question, who wins in an uh, unstoppable force and an immovable object? The immovable object came out on top. Um, but Garrett, you know, as I kind of look at the rest of the landscape, it wasn't just Michigan that was a defensive stalwart. Honestly, as you look through much of the top 10, I think you have to get all the way to 12 in the final AP poll to LSU before you get to a team that you went, yeah, they didn't use defense for anything. That top 11, like defense either was kind of their calling card or something that they markedly improved this season. Well, and you needed, you know, a Heisman winner and Shane Daniels to get you there too. So like right. there's, there's a lot that goes into the whole thing, right? So for me, when I look at this, I've always been a guy who appreciates watching good defense. I know that so many people only watch the ball so you don't understand watching a good defense clamp down. And that's not me trying to like, you know, oh, you're all dumb for not watching. But like I like watching good the for, defense. Good for business football. to avoid that. Right, yeah. <laughs> No, but like, but I'm saying like, I like to watch the defense play football. Whenever you get those like stalemate games where just it's nine to six at the end, like those are fun for me because that shows not just, oh, you had some plays that worked and some guys who can run down the field and blow past coverages. You had to earn every yard that you gained on the ground and, and fight the field position battle. And there's something about that that feels fun and intense and trying to kind of grind against, you know, two teams kind of grinding the gears to get down to one side, then to the other side. And there's a huge penalty. So it picks up 15 yards. You feel like it swings the field position battle in a huge way. Those games are fun for me to watch. And I know that they don't draw in mass amounts of eyeballs, but those are fun to watch. And I, and I think when you watch the national championship game, there was something fun about watching the Michigan defense just swarm and really affect Penix and the rest of the Washington offense, who up to that point in the season kind of did what they wanted to do pretty much at will. Sometimes they played down to their competition, but, you know, there were massive stretches that season where they just, you know, you know, F it, Adunze is down there somewhere, right? And, and you know, you just kind of throw it up. And, you know, I think we even joked week one when we saw him, it was just a, you know, hey, drop back and then just flick it 50 yards and see what happens. And so, yeah. you know, for me, it was fun to watch the Michigan defense force them to try something else and force them to try to grind it out on the ground or or find a way to make the screens work and really fight for every single yard. It was fun watching that happen. And obviously Michigan came out on top. I think they were the better team, but a massive part of that was how dominant their defense was. It's just, it's cool to see the defenses still matter. It's cool to see that the defenses and recruiting on the defensive side and really putting effort into that side of the ball can really make the difference. Whereas it doesn't matter if you have the Heisman winner in Jane Daniels or the number one pick in Caleb Williams, if your defense sucks, you're not going to do it. Yeah. And I think what you're hitting on there is really the important thing because we can watch two defenses duke it out in a nine, six game in the big 10 West all year long. And it's not championship caliber football. Right? Sure. Yeah. We like, it does matter who they are stopping. And what was most impressive about Michigan throughout this whole year was they faced some really good offenses. They faced the Ohio State offense. They faced a Alabama offense, and they faced maybe the best offense in the country in Washington. And their defense just held their own every single time against talented players on the other side of the ball. And yeah, that that's what made this Michigan defense stand out amongst the rest. Uh, they were able to get it done against elite competition on the other side of the ball. 
Totally agree. I, I think as and college football is cyclical, just like all things. But I think we've gone through the air raids, the wide open offenses, and there's still a lot of success there, right? Spreading out the defense. There are a lot of mismatches that you can pick on when that's your offensive strategy. But for me, it's fun to see this swing again to physicality, to having to win at the line of scrimmage. I mean, heck, that's that's why a team like Texas was able to go to the college football playoff. They finally got over the hurdle of not being able to compete in the trenches when it was clutch time, when they absolutely needed to lock down the running game, to get to the quarterback, to protect their own quarterback throughout much of the season. That was finally true of a Longhorns team. And I think it's a, a blueprint and a template that a lot of teams are looking actively to replicate, especially now that the portal is is so active right offensive and defensive linemen are coveted now through the portal especially if you can get those veterans those you know fourth year juniors those fifth year seniors those are the guys that that these elite coaches are trying to go recruit and then win national championships through well and i can also i can already hear the refrain you know, oh, well, what about all those great offensive teams that won championships? What about like 2019 LSU? That was just a good offense that beat everybody. Their defense was 32nd in the country that year. And, you know, they only gave up 21 points a game. And, you know, they only gave up like 120 on the ground. Like those those aren't elite numbers necessarily. But those are numbers that are, you know, by far good enough, especially when you're playing in the SEC. Those are incredible numbers to bring to, you know, a game against Georgia, a game against, you know, Clemson or, you know, whoever else you might want to play in that situation. That's good enough to win those games, to, you know, let your offense that is so much more talented, you know, shine because your defense is doing big things too. They're, they're you know, they're, they're, what was it? It was the Peach Bowl against Oklahoma. They won that 63-28 and then they win over Clemson 42-25. Those are both low numbers, relative to what you know the rest of college football was letting them do low numbers for scoring for that Oklahoma and Clemson team yeah like even in that example or or pick any other example pick any of the Bama teams that have won championships they might have had great offenses but they also shut down opposing teams right like the, the COVID team the 2020 team when it was the they played Ohio State in the championship game they shut down Justin Fields and the rest of that Ohio State offense, like they, they shut them down. They didn't let them do very much mm -hmm. until, you know, the game was kind of out of reach and they kind of let off on the gas pedal just so the clock would run. So defense does win championships. It's not, you cannot win with an elite offense and no defense to speak of. You cannot win like that. At the very least, it's very, very difficult, even more rare to do it that way than an average offense in an elite elite defense guys there you go our top five storylines from 2023 we've got much much more content coming for you in the 2024 season third year of the three tech pod it is off and running and we are just as excited to continue bringing you guys content each and every week for trey reeves garrett turney i'm mitch mason thanks so much for hanging out with us until next time so long everybody yeah.